0: the successes they've had, ways that they have become so definitively focused on moving forward. We look forward to sharing their stories, and we hope that they inspire you just as much as they have inspired us. Thanks for listening, and enjoy the show. Welcome to the latest episode of Focused on Forward. Today we're going to be talking with Travis Olson. Uh, Travis I met a year ago while both of our children were at a hospital called Mary Freebed. Bed. Uh, kind of a funny story as to how I got to meet Travis. Um, he may not have noticed it, but as we were uh, getting there, I saw this man sitting in the room with his daughter, and I thought, man, I know that guy from somewhere. And so I kept telling my wife, do you see that guy down there? I know I know him. I know I know him. Well, uh, so eventually I got the nerve up to go up and say hi to this gentleman. Uh, with the worst bar pickup line ever. Don't I know you from somewhere? And Travis was gracious enough that even though no, I did not know him, uh, to be kind and and, and not look at me like the weirdo that I was. So, uh, (laughs) it was nice to have him on today. And uh, you guys are gonna have an opportunity here to talk with Travis, or listen to Travis talk rather, and hear his story, uh, what he has gone through. Uh, and how he has learned with his family how to how to focus on forward. So, Travis, we're all excited to hear what you have to say, and we look forward to your story anytime you're ready.
1: Well, Tim, I'm glad to be here with you guys. And uh, I will tell you, my mother many years ago raised me as the kind of person who would say hi to anybody. And uh, I'm now in the car business, so even more, I will say hi to absolutely anybody. And I thought about that. You looked familiar to me when we first met, and I think we met for a short period of time at Helen DeVos, um, where you had been for quite some time, uh, and we spent about three days at, which is another hospital there in Grand Rapids. So I feel like we may have briefly crossed paths and not even talked to each other at at that hospital. But that that actually, may be that part actually kind of that of mystery. sense. So I know you guys were there for, what, about two weeks? and And... Yeah. Um, I'll get to the part of the story where we were, we were there for, I think about three days. So, okay. Um, my story starts back. Well, my story starts many years ago, but my family story really starts, uh, in this instance, back on April 10th of last year. Uh, my daughter, Libby, who's my oldest daughter. She was 16 at the time and wonderful kid, very motivated. Um, works at a little, uh, summer camp down the street. Um, honor student in school you know had her driver's license everything was going great and we were headed to the honor society banquet that evening so i had arranged to get out of work a little bit early and and she made a phone call to me and she said uh dad i've got the worst headache in my life and she told me she felt like she'd been shot uh later she let us know that she looked at the window because she figured the only way you can get shot is through a window um and it just struck me wrong you know when i heard it all the the hair on the back of my neck went up and i i bolted out of work and i drove home very very quickly and and when we got here um my daughter was laughing oh just joyous and giddy and happy and and just ecstatic really and i asked her i said does it still hurt she says oh it hurts so bad and i couldn't put Two and two together. Um, almost seemed like if you've ever been out and had a few too many beers to drink with a friend and and they, that friend just can't stop laughing because they're so inebriated. I didn't think my 16-year-old was inebriated at the time. Uh, and I said, you know what, if it hurts this bad, let's go have it checked out. And she stood up to go have it checked out and basically fell over. At that oh, wow. time, her right arm and leg just weren't working quite right. Um, we went to, so I scooped her up and I, I went to carry her out to the car because in my mind I was still going to drive her to the, to the hospital and we got in the car and my wife got in and and she was sitting in the back seat with Libby and we got about 15, 15, seconds out of the driveway and my daughter's face dropped off to the, to the right and she completely went limp on one side that's um we had seen some signs of stroke before that but that's when we really knew what was happening i uh, got on the phone with 911 had us meet an ambulance part way to the hospital we live out in the country a little bit okay and they uh an emergency firefighter showed up moments before the ambulance and he looked at her and and came up with the same diagnosis we did of of probable stroke um the ambulance arrived quickly, loaded her up. No, um, no real assessment at that point. Just get her in and let's go. We followed the ambulance part of the way because it was on the highway, and then the ambulance went out ahead. And by the time we got to the hospital, she was in the big emergency room um, with 20 plus people around, and that was, of course, <clears throat> excuse me, of course, pretty scary at that time. And a lot of uncertainty about what was going on.
0: Now, just, I, just to interrupt real quick, though. Yeah. So, so up to this point, Libby was a completely healthy child, correct?
1: 100%. No no signs, symptoms, no indication that anything was amiss.
0: So not an, even an inkling that this might have been on the
1: horizon. No, I mean, the occasional headache in her life, um, I doubt those were related, but she'd have a headache once in a while, you know. Yeah, like we all do. Normal stuff, yeah, just normal stuff. So um, this was completely and totally out of the blue. She had had a really stressful day. She had um, her ACT one day before, and she had her SAT that day, and then this Honor Society banquet coming up. And so she was under some stress, but nothing that should have led to this. Okay. So uh, next thing you know, we find ourselves here in the emergency room. And uh, it started to become more and more real as time went on. Uh, We met the physician who was part of the pediatric unit who came down. It was his first day on the job. And if under any circumstance there's a medical professional listening to this, please don't tell anyone it's your first day on the job. Oh, boy. He told you that? That's exactly what he told me. Oh, man. He he came down and we said... (laughs) You know, he was the doctor who wasn't immediately tending to my daughter. And he came up and I said, hey, what's going on? And he says, well, um, she's having stroke. Uh, she appears to be having a stroke. We're going to send her off for a CT. And I said, well, what happens next? How does this go? And he goes, well, I really don't know. It's my first day at this hospital. <laughs> and I thought, "Man, okay. And I said something to the effect at this point of, is she going to die? And he says, well, we don't know that yet. Which is probably a very reasonable answer from his point of view. It was a totally unreasonable answer from mine. Understood. Um, so we, uh, we were there, my wife and I, and, and of course Libby was on the gurney, and they wheeled her out for the CT. And we went from this hectic, crazy room with everything happening at once to nobody. Um, one nurse came in and was kind of tidying up and it was this vacuum of of energy and urgency all of a sudden and we sat there for what was probably 20 minutes which felt like quite a long time and halfway through uh they brought in a ventilator and there's no bed in the room at that time they they brought in a ventilator and i i tried to convince myself that the ventilator just belonged in that room that it had nothing to do with with my daughter. Um, Realistically, that wasn't the case. Uh, When they brought her back, uh, they let us know that she had a massive bleed in her brain that they detected uh, and that they were going to intubate her so that she didn't stop breathing. Okay. And this was, everything had happened so quickly. This was probably within the first 45 minutes after I got home from work. So we really had Everything had happened very, very quickly. So to go from a normal day with dinner plans and, and the most important thing going on was, am I going to get out of work on time, to uh, a sharp left turn into, is my daughter going to die? And that was a very tough thing to deal with. I remember shortly after the ventilator came in, the chaplain walked into the room and asked if he could be of assistance to us. And I said, no. I said, I don't need you here. Uh, I'll let you know if we do. And he says, yep, no problem. A couple days later, I had to apologize to that, that same guy. <laughs> my my initial feeling was when a chaplain shows up and says, hey, I'm the chaplain. You ever watch the show MASH, Tim?
0: Yeah, it was never a good thing when the chaplain came in.
1: Yeah, when, when Father Mulcahy showed up, he was given last rites. Correct. And that was my same... That's exactly where I went instantaneously. <laughs> I thought he's here because she's done. And I'm not ready for her to be done.
0: I think that's a logical assumption, you know, based um, on based on yeah. the level of expertise that you have had would have had with that, that occurrence. You know. Yeah.
1: I watched a lot of episodes of MASH.
0: Yeah, same here. Kinda grew <laughs> yeah. up with it.
1: <laughs> yep. So we uh, we we made it through these first twenty minutes. And I remember, um, I've always been a man of, of, well, I don't want to say always for the later part of my life. I've been a man with a significant amount of faith in in God, Jesus. And I remember feeling at the time that he had a plan. I just wasn't sure that the plan was something I was okay with. Sure. And I found myself at that moment, questioning my faith. Am I, am I willing to trust others in in what's right and that was a tough that was a tough period shortly after they um they innovated my daughter and they took her up to the pediatric floor and they said hey you can come right along with us for so oh, while they innovated her they had us wait in a separate room i take it Hey, look we'll all that now. And they came in and they said, "Hey, the innovation's done. We're taking her upstairs." And I said, "We just need to sit for a minute." And we sat in this tiny little waiting room, only big enough for three people to stand up in, um, just to kind of collect ourselves for a few minutes. Yeah. Just to spend some time, and I, you know, there's a box of tissues in there, and we used quite a few of those. Yeah. And I don't know that we had more than. 10 or 15 minutes until it was time to to go upstairs carrying a a bag of our daughter's belongings and, you know, whatever we were wearing when we walked in the hospital. Uh, Later that night, uh, not later that night, shortly after, they put a tube in her brain to relieve the swelling. What I didn't realize at the time is that once that blood gets in your brain, there's no way to get it out because it's thick, like jelly. Oh, uh, so I, they, I didn't know that either. They can't just stick a tube in there and suck the the blood out, because it's about the same consistency of brain. But there is some what should be clear fluid in there, and if you can release the pressure of the clear fluid, then you don't have to worry about the jelly over-expanding the brain, if okay. you will. Um, so they they drilled a hole and fed a tube down into her head to drain off the cerebral spinal fluid so that swelling wouldn't be an issue. And at this time, everyone's hoping that the bleeding is stopped, but no one knows. And they decided to hold off for a short period of time before they did a second scan to see if there was a change. Um, When they did the second scan, they determined that she'd stopped bleeding uh, much like if you cut your arm and it bleeds for a little bit, um, the vessel that had popped in her head uh, bled for a while and then coagulated over eventually.
0: How long was it in between them waiting and then doing the second scan?
1: I want to say morning, so probably 12 hours. Okay. Um, that first night, well, it was longer than that, but that first night um, our plan was for us both to stay at the hospital. Um and I decided about midnight that I would come home and grab some some belongings for Joanna and I. We have two other kids. Uh grandma and grandpa had swooped into the house and picked up the other two kids and they were um they were whisked off to grandma's house. Strangely after the fact uh, my my younger daughter my middle daughter who's would have been 14 at the time was pretty frustrated that we didn't have her come up to the hospital and have her see what was going on with her sister um she felt very removed from the whole process um that was something that left a little bit of a ptsd kind of scar if you will okay for her for some period of time um they were already at grandma and grandpa's. Uh, my wife was at the hospital. My daughter was on a ventilator. The tube was in, nothing was supposed to happen. I came home. Um, when I came home, we had a brand new kit that was two or three weeks in our house. And the two dogs had somehow gotten into the area where the kitten was and terrorized her to no end. Um, and I thought the kitten was okay. It turned out the next morning, the kitten was, The kit. Uh, my middle daughter came back to the house to check on the animals and the kitten was severely traumatized and the kitten had to be rushed to the vet that morning. Oh man. And I remember getting this call and I said, I called my sister up and I said, hey, I need you to be the kitten's surrogate parent. Make whatever decisions you need to do on this kitten. Um, life or death because I just didn't have the emotional bandwidth to deal with a daughter in the ER and a cat at the vet that's a lot of and work. yeah it really was um, and it it felt the the kitten felt overwhelming it was just the straw that would have broken my back and so I I gave away my parental rights to kitten care
0: sure.
1: Um, to my sister, and, and that turned out okay. Um, the kitten was, uh, while my daughter was hooked up to IVs and a, a, a drain in her brain and, and EKGs, the kitten was at the vet being rehydrated and having some liver issues taken care of. So they had a very similar existence at the time. <laughs> yeah. Uh, the, it was probably two or three days later when everything was going well and they decided to take her off the ventilator. My daughter, not the cat. right? Um, Yeah, and during that time, uh, my wife and I, we stayed at the hospital 24-7. They had a room for us to sleep in and and Joanna would sleep at night and then I'd go take a nap for a couple hours during the day and then kind of come back and we'd have a few hours together. Um, kind of watching over her. And it was the second time I've had the opportunity to sit there and watch someone who's not there, who's in a coma for whatever reason. Mm-hmm. I, I had done it with my mother many years earlier after she had a surgery and, and never woke up and was on a ventilator and spent 11 days in a coma and after those 11 days, she woke up, and she's been fine ever since. And that really prepared me for having to sit with my 16-year-old daughter in the same situation. Uh, where should I take this next? She woke up. That was a great thing. It was a huge uh, movement forward.
0: So how, how long did, was, was uh, Libby in a coma then?
1: I want to say three or four days.
0: Three or four days. Okay.
1: Yeah. So not a terribly long time. Long
0: it, enough as a parent though.
1: Yeah. Yeah. It felt like a long time. Maybe it was more than that. Yeah, uh, four, three to five days, somewhere in there. Okay. Um, I'm going to sc- circle back to something in a minute. Uh, when she woke up, she was adamant that she wanted to communicate. She couldn't talk because she still had a a tube in her mouth. And we got her a piece of paper, and she was trying to draw with her left hand. And it took us 20, 30 minutes to figure out what she was trying to write. But it was work. She had to be to work at, at 4.30. And she <laughs> wanted to know if she was late.
0: Want to know if she was late? <laughs> yeah. Hey, you got to admire the dedication, right?
1: <laughs> yeah. It was funny. So that first moment when she woke up, she was... Uh, convinced she had to be to work. so that uh, We spent about two weeks total in the intensive care there, um, both before and after. When she first woke up, they warned us that she would have no impulse control. And they said, hey, your daughter may say things that are mean or she may say things that are inappropriate, um, but she won't have any ability to filter what she says. And I guess that led me both a, a little bit of fear because I was going to see exactly who she was, but wonder at the same time. Sure. It's an opportunity most of us don't get to really find out who our child is deep down inside. Um, there were some physical signs. She could not stay still for more than two, three seconds. And with somebody who was still hooked up to IVs and catheters and all sorts of different hoses and tubes to have her roll and roll and roll was, was very <laughs> difficult. Um, but that's what we did all night long, repositioning two, three times a minute that first night she was awake. That kind of settled down. And she was focused on my wife and I relationship. And she was asking each of us independently whether or not we had a boyfriend or girlfriend. She seemed very insecure about whether or not we were cheating on each other. Interesting. Um, yeah, and very concerned that we were going to get a divorce. Uh, to my knowledge, neither my wife or I have either cheated on each other, and that seemed kind of an unfounded fear, but it was interesting to see what was going on in her psyche.
0: So That's where she went to with, with this.
1: That yeah. is, yeah, and she couldn't control this, this urge to know. Uh, we probably spent two days talking about it. Oh, wow. And then, um, you know, and she kept trying to catch us and, you know, she'd ask and then we'd talk about something else. She'd go back to ask to see if our story was the same. And uh, it was because, because it's the truth. Right. Well, the truth doesn't and, change. Go ahead.
0: I said the truth doesn't change.
1: No, it, it doesn't. It's convenient that way. It's a lot easier to tell a true story. (laughs) Um, So she was very concerned about that, and then she was concerned that because she was um, special or because she was different, that that would cause the two of us to get a divorce as well. Oh, wow. Yeah, and that weighed really heavily on her for that first week. Um, She was very concerned that she would be the cause of of marital discord, which at the time wasn't, wasn't the case. Um, that first week to rolling really into the second week, we were in intensive care for about 11 days. Besides the initial uncertainty, I felt pretty calm the whole time. Um, I was sad. I was worried. Um, I was trying mentally to plan a little bit for the future. But I always felt confident that she was going to She was going to be okay That she was going to pull out of this And somehow bounce back completely Um, I ran into a lot of people who came up and stopped by to to visit And uh, some who went and saw her Some who just visited with Joanne and I in the waiting room One of them was a friend of mine Who was really, really angry he was, he was furious, and it took me a while to figure out why. And he'd stopped up one day, and we had talked, and he was mad because he felt guilty about being glad that it was not his child this had happened to. Oh, okay. So he felt a significant amount of guilt that he was... And he's a great guy.
0: Did he feel and that I, maybe like he had wished this upon her because he, it wasn't his child, like like oh thank God it wasn't my child that type of thing?
1: Yeah, I think the thank God it wasn't my child is kind of sums it right up. And so he was, he felt really remorseful that he would ever feel that way. And he was a friend of ours; he still is a friend of ours and a friend of the family. And I remember later, probably the second night, I called him up and I said, "Hey man, I really need some food. Can you bring me? Can you bring me some food?" And I knew he wouldn't be able to turn me down. <laughs> and he says, well, I don't know what's open. It's like it's like 1130. I said, yeah, I, just, I want some Taco Bell. And so he, he stopped and got some Taco Bell, and he came up. And um, we sat and talked for three or four hours. Nice. And that was one of the first times when I realized that this horrible story, this horrible event had the potential to be a force for good yeah it, it really had the potential to inspire others and to start conversations and to help people be better people okay good and that's that first night talk turned into three or four nights talk uh spread over the two weeks and was really good for me um interestingly enough i kind of ended up on the other side of that equation uh, one of the people who stopped up to visit is a good friend of mine, uh, Lori. And Lori lost her son and her husband in a mass shooting event a few years ago here in Kalamazoo. Oh,
0: my.
1: And when she came up and we talked a little bit, I felt, I felt guilty because I was still able to, f- to fight for my daughter's survival. I was still able to have hope that she would be okay when my friend had just had them taken away from her in an instant. Right. With no hope, no chance to intervene, no, no ability to pray on their behalf, but just taken away.
0: And just deal with the loss, yeah.
1: Yeah. And so I, it was kind of cool to me that um, I got to see both sides of that story.
0: Yeah, that is interesting because it's it's quite the juxtaposition, really. Because yeah. you've got you know the one friend who, honestly, clearly they're both good friends of yours. But so the one feels guilty that it was. Thank God it wasn't my child. And then there's the you feeling guilty for you know being able to fight for your child. That is, that's quite interesting to me.
1: Yeah, it was um, definitely seemed like an important part of the whole ordeal. Uh, we we, we kind of continued through and um, you know formed some friendships with the nurses there just phenomenal people um, really did did some great work um, ran into some of them again later in the process and and Libby was convinced that she would never forget any of them in hindsight it turned out that because of the state of her injury and everything going on she didn't remember anyone from, from her 11 days in intensive care, and she has almost no recollection of anyone from that portion of the journey.
0: That so, yeah, makes sense.
1: Yeah, we've explained that to her, and I think she seems to be happy with that explanation.
0: You know, even um, not to compare situations, but to compare situations, uh, when Kendall was in the ICU uh, at DeVos, um, again, amazing nurses and, and staff there. Uh, we had one nurse that was just, you know, she really took to Kendall very well. And uh, she came up later to visit Kendall at Mary Freebed. And Kendall was very nice and kind and everything else. And when she left, Kendall looked at me and said, Dad, who was that? <laughs> you, know, she had, you know, Kendall had no idea, no clue that this was one of her nurses. Kind of the uh,
1: same situation. It uh, seemed odd to us at the time, but in hindsight, perfectly understandable.
0: Yeah, so, absolutely. Um,
1: so we spent about 11 days at uh, the pediatric intensive care down at Bronson in Kalamazoo, uh, which was close. And they had a place for us to sleep. And, and Joanne and I kind of spent that time together. Um, And then we headed up to Mary Freebed And everyone had told us how great it was And I kind of called it The Napoleon Dynamite Principle Okay The Napoleon The movie Napoleon Dynamite came out And everybody told me how funny it was It's the funniest movie you've ever seen And I thought Okay well I've got to see this And, And you know at that point If you didn't go to a movie theater You didn't get to see it early Right. And so I hadn't seen it and finally it came out on VHS tape and I, I went to Blockbuster and I rented it and I, I put it in and it wasn't that funny. It just wasn't that great a movie in my mind. Right. And I think what happened to me is that I was expecting this hilarious non stop and because my expectations were so high, everything that happened fell short of them. Right. And so in my life, I call that the Napoleon Dynamite Principle, and I was a little worried about applying that to uh, Mary Freebett. Sure. And so I was hesitant uh, to, hesitant to believe that they were all they were. Uh, We got there, and very quickly it became obvious to me how focused they were on, on patients and and I was used to having to advocate for my daughter in the medical system and make sure everything was happening right. And they kind of treated things differently.
0: Well, they're um, ahead of the game there, I think.
1: They really are. And some of the other people, we, you know, we came to know you and Shana, and, and we came to know Malachi and his parents. and Yeah. Um, just some amazing, phenomenal recovery stories. Um, Malachi's story especially that I look at, and how many people would have given up on them? How many people would have, exactly you know, put put him away and never, never had him come out.
0: Yeah.
1: Uh, we managed to Mary Freebed. Um, the hard work really started. That's when those first couple days of therapy, she couldn't even stand up without her blood pressure dropping. Um, so we would wheel her around in a wheelchair. And when she got lightheaded, I would tilt it back and lay her head on my shoulder as I sat there with the wheelchair in my, kind of in my lap and it was, it was tough, but at the same time, I had a 16-year-old daughter who was quickly leaving the nest. She had her own car, she had her job, she was at school all the time. If she wasn't there, she was headed out to the mall with friends, and she had kind of left out of our, you know, started to leave the nest.
0: Sure.
1: And here we were getting back some of that, that parenting time, and I felt. hmm, I don't know if "guilty" is the right word, but here I was taking joy from something that again was horrible, and it reminded me yet again that sometimes the things that we look at as good or bad aren't necessarily good or bad. Yeah. Um, There's no question in my mind that we have a totally different relationship now with our daughter than we did beforehand. And both myself and my wife, uh, my wife Joanna is really connected with Libya in a way that she never had through 16 years. So, yeah, some blessing there.
0: Yeah, I, I understand what you're saying about, you know, not sure if you, it's something you should feel happy about or appreciate or because when uh, Kendall's second stint back to the ICU uh, and she had to have her, her lungs punctured and, and drained. um you know, we couldn't, we couldn't do anything but hold her hand for close to a week, because she had to be propped up a certain way, and we couldn't get near the, the, um, uh, the, the, the drainage site because of risk of infection and and all these type of things. So, uh, I, one of the favorite pictures that I have uh, from our whole entire hospital stay is the first night that Shana got to lay back down with Kendall, and <clears throat> and cuddle with her in the bed. Um, because, you know, and we both said to each other later, you know, is, is it wrong that 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 made us happy? You know, because yeah. there was there was so much time where we couldn't do that. It, it felt wrong that we were happy about it. But on the other hand, we, you know, yeah. So I understand completely where you come from in that.
1: It's almost like going back to to young
0: childhood with a with a newborn infant. Yeah, a little bit. In a way. Yeah. yeah. Well,
1: it's funny you would mention the second stint at Helen DeVos. Um, That's where our journey took us very quickly afterwards. Uh, Libby had been at Mary Free Bed for a few days, and her heart rate started to go weird, and her blood pressure started to go weird. And I remember asking the night nurse, hey, can we just leave the monitors on for a little while? And I had been used to the intensive care world where the monitors were going, 24 7 and so one of the things that always made me nervous after that was the fact that I couldn't see her vital signs by just looking up and knowing she was okay right and for those first three nights without the monitors on non-stop it was it was a weird feeling it was back to that newborn child being home and not knowing whether they're breathing or not and going in to check on them uh, on the third night her vitals went really crazy and about three in the morning, the decision was made to take her by ambulance to DeVos Children's Hospital. Okay. And we headed there, and I remember the monitor at Mary Free Bed had these this picture of a human, and if everything was good, it was green, and if it was curious, it would be yellow. And her her blood pressure and her breathing had gone into red. And I decided that was really bad. And we got to the ER and they they took us in by ambulance. Uh, They confirmed that, yeah, everything was really bad. And that they didn't know how to get it under control at that point. And they did another emergency CT to see if there was anything going on with the bleeding. Um, I called my father who lived in, (laughs) in Grand Rapids and I had him meet us down there at the hospital. Joanna was an hour plus away and I, I kind of undersold what was going on. I said, Hey, we're going over to the hospital cause she's got a, you know, she's not doing well and they want to make sure medically they get her stabilized. So I'll call you back and let you know how everything goes, but you don't have to rush up right yet. And she went back to sleep and, and I figured if one of us could worry, that would be enough. Sure. So we, uh, we headed over to the hospital and I called my father and he came and and everything they told me I was hearing with rose-colored glasses and everything he heard, which was the same stuff. And uh, it sounded all like she was done for. Yeah. And it became obvious to me pretty quickly that, that more was at hand than I, I felt like was going on. And then I started to get a little scared again. Um, kind of a cool story. In that point, I always carried around a little pocket Bible. It's about three inches by four and a half inches, and it was always in my pocket. And I would, I'd always flip it open and hope that I was just going to flip open to some prophetic um, passage.
0: Some, you know, uh, hot moment was, with the light shining down, and this is what I need at that moment.
1: Yeah, yeah. <laughs> I always expected that. You know, I've, I, always thought I just thumb through, and, and I must open that thing twice a day. And I opened it up and not saying that it's not good stuff, but it never felt like it was just exactly what I needed to hear. Okay? Um, that night uh, That night I flipped it open and I flipped page 385, which is, is part of John 5:21. And he says, uh, "It's with this confidence that we have towards him that if we ask anything according to His will, he hears us. And if we know that he hears us and whatever we ask, we know that we have the request that we have asked of him. And it just, it was one of those shine down light from the heavens moments. Okay. And it was this, it was this moment that I knew that the prayers that I'd made for her and the, were already answered and that she was going to be okay kind of hit and miss for a couple days they ended up pumping her full of antibiotics uh doing a lot of different tests trying to figure out what was wrong never did figure out what was wrong um but they decided that one of the antibiotics they had used and they I mean, they used a bunch uh killed whatever infection was going on uh so something we spent, in other
0: attempts right the ship somewhere
1: something in there, along their attempts right at the ship uh And that was, that was, I'm pretty sure when you and I would have run into each other. Because if I remember, hmm, I remember hearing about uh, a patient that was having some procedures there that later we decided was probably Kendall. But neither here nor there. Uh, And I'll bet we just crossed paths somewhere along the line.
0: That whole time in the ICU is a blur for us. I'll bet it is. You know, there's... And I'm sure you you feel much the same way. That you, There's things that you remember very clearly, the the high points and the low points, but the in-betweens are just kind of the yeah. minutiae of what happened.
1: Yeah. So. We uh, She came out of um, Helen DeVos much stronger and healthier than before. We were able to get down to physical therapy with some amount of earnest. Um, went through about four more weeks of that, so a total of five weeks, and... Um, left her goal was to leave Mary Freebed walking by her birthday. And she was able to achieve that. Um, I remember putting all these qualifiers on her goal, like, it's okay if you don't necessarily do it, and it's okay if we have to stay a little longer. And she told me, she says, Dad, I'm going to walk out of here before my birthday. And she was able to do that. She walked out with uh, with only the help of a, a foot brace to keep her foot from dropping nice and um made a whole bunch of progress in those five weeks so we came home and life kind of got a little bit back to normal some of the things that i remember really amazing me at the time when you have a child who's in the icu or in in the rehab hospital and everything's crazy and you're so all your your energy and your time is focused on that you forget that little things can happen. Our refrigerator went out. And I just felt like I should have gotten a pass on that. <laughs> um, I don't remember who it was up at Mary Freebed that their toilet overflowed. And I thought, you know, you should really get a pass on these things. Like, who's in charge of scheduling? Right. Um, because during these huge crises, all these little things should just go away. Right. Um, at, After a few weeks of being home, it became obvious that that wasn't the case. Um, You have to figure out how to manage the big crisis with the day-to-day crises that you've dealt with every day up until then, um, some of which seem insurmountable on their own. So we're about a year out. Um, She's made progress. She has some use of her right hand. We're looking at driving again here soon. That's awesome. Yeah, it's pretty cool. Um, They did a procedure where they radiated um, the area in her brain that bled so that it won't bleed again. So we got away without having to have them go into her brain and do a physical incision.
0: Oh, that's even better.
1: Yeah, it's called the Gamma Knife, which sounds like it should be on a sci-fi show. Right. Uh, Or that it is
0: a a sci-fi show.
1: Might be Uh, 216 radiation lasers that all converge on one point in her brain and they radiate that tissue to thicken it and close it off. So uh, that process can take after it was just a one shot of radiation. And after that, it can take anywhere between six months to two years to, to thicken up and close off until it does that. She's at an increased risk for another stroke. Um, that's a I guess a fear that we're aware of. Sure. But can't really do anything about. Um, besides some kind of normal precautions of keeping her well hydrated and being aware of which medicines she's on and things like that. Okay. So we're a year out. Um walking well, going back to driving. She finished school, except for this little COVID nineteen thing that popped up. Um,
0: yeah.
1: <laughs> no, this would have been her senior year. Um, so, no graduation, no walk, no prom. She missed her junior prom while she was in the hospital after the stroke and missed her senior prom with COVID. <laughs>
0: yeah, I was a little kid.
1: irritated by that.
0: I'm sure, yeah.
1: We're still figuring out how that looks. So, uh, taking the summer off and then headed to the community college in the fall. Okay. Um, it's. Recovery is not full. She doesn't have use of her right hand. She's not going to run anytime soon, but she's still making some gains. We go to uh, occupational therapy twice a week. Um, it, it's a different mindset. You come to accept some things that early on, you had that hope of 100% full recovery, and as you get closer to whatever date either you've set or the medical establishment is sent, You know, if they say you're going to make progress for the first year and a half, some people said year, some said year and a half. And so you start setting those timelines and you begin to realize sometimes out of there that it's okay if this is the new normal. Um, It's okay if this is as good as it gets. Uh, That's hard to do. It It takes a whole lot of focus and you kind of have to grieve what came before and enjoy what you have now yeah
0: oh absolutely
1: so that's the uh that's the round trip of our story if you will um i'm curious to see how libby continues to do uh she's been back to work two or three times uh camp is pretty quiet during the winter time but she's headed back at the end of the month when they reopen up um she's excited to be doing that again i'm sure so it's uh, it's been a tough journey there are times when emotionally it's exhausting more often than not it's the little things the mundane things that were there before that now add to everything going on and and that overwhelm us yeah but you keep going on because that's the only choice we have agree keep moving forward I believe you might say
0: yeah Absolutely. Yeah. So. So let me ask you That's. this.
1: Yeah. So, you know, not to uh,
0: minimalize any of the trials or tribulations that you guys have gone through uh, or, that, or that Libby has gone through. But if you could look back over this one year of your life and certainly has had some monumental changes, what would you say is the, the, the greatest thing that you have taken out of all of this? What is your learning point?
1: I'd say the greatest learning point, and I'm going to give you a couple because I don't want to pick a favorite. <laughs>
0: That's One funny. is
1: that what, what you and I look at from the outside as a bad situation or a bad event may not be. Um, on paper, any way you look at it, any way you slice it, a 16-year-old child having blood on her brain is bad. But I can tell you with certainty that there are positive effects that have come out of it. And positive relationships, positive changes in our relationship, changes in my faith, changes in the faith of others. Um, So one of the things that sticks out to me is that anytime you see something that's bad, understand how in in the eternal sense it may not be. It may not be at all. Um, okay. Obviously, don't take anything for granted. You know, the use of your, your right hand uh, seems easy enough, but um, those changes. And then don't let the little things in life steal the joy from the big things. I think those are the three biggest lessons that I've learned.
0: Okay. Yeah, I uh, I liked one of the sentences you said earlier that you at that a certain point through this, you had to learn how to grieve what you had before but enjoy what you have now. And I think that was one of the biggest challenges that we faced uh, when we came home was was learning to be able to accept the new normal and that there was limitations on what Kendall can do and cannot do. And, and I'm sure that you find it's much the same for Libby, that there's limitations on what she can and cannot do, but it doesn't change... Um, you know, for the things that it does change, there's certain things that it doesn't change. Like, you know, uh, you know, your relationship with her. Even though there are changes to the relationship, it you know, it strengthens and enhances other things about it. So,
1: absolutely.
0: But uh, and then there's also one other thing I wanted to tell you about our uh, our time together at Mary Freebed. And I wanted to thank you for this because I don't I don't know if you'll recall this or or not. But I think it was on our second trip back to Mary Freebed. I had only gone home twice uh, during our, our entire stay there, and it seemed like each time I went home, something catastrophic happened, and I was uh, disobeying every speed law on the way back to the hospital, because I live an <laughs> hour north. Um, and the second time uh, is when we found out that Kemmel had a, a massive lung in func- uh, infection, and, and it was really a big issue, and that's when we had to go get her, her lungs drained. Um, but, uh, I came out of the room and, and I don't know if, if I just had that look on my face or or of, uh, I I was feeling lost and I was feeling a little bit distraught and I wasn't sure I was trying to play brave for my wife. I think honestly, um,
1: that's her job,
0: right? And I was trying to be the stone face and trying to play brave and, and, uh, you came out in the hallway you hugged me and you gave me your business card and you said, if I ever needed to talk and you wrote a little, a little something on the back side of it. And I want you to know that that meant more to me at that point, I think than any handshake or pat on the back that, that anybody gave me, uh, during this whole thing, because it really was, it was a very large pick me up, um, just a little thing. And so, uh, I don't know if you remember that at all or not, but it meant a lot to me.
1: I do. Uh, what you don't realize is, I felt this strong need to make sure that you had someone to communicate with. Um, one of the things—it definitely having an event like this happen makes you part of a club you never wanted to join.
0: <laughs> oh my God! There's so much truth to that.
1: <laughs> you know, and it it puts you in a situation where. Um, I, I don't want to say unless you've been through it you'll never understand um, because I don't want anyone else to understand I really don't I don't want anyone else Agreed. to go through what, what you've gone through and what I've gone through and um, to my friend who felt so guilty I, I absolved him of all that guilt because I don't want him or any of his children to go through what we had to endure but I think it's important that you help others endure what you've had to yeah, and that if you've struggled with addiction, that you help people who are struggling with addiction. If you struggle with body image, that you help someone who's struggling with body image, and that that camaraderie, that fellowship, makes us all stronger. Agreed. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. So, that's why I was so glad you reached out to talk on a podcast. Yeah. No, this was great. Yeah. I've, it's nice to. Have catch I mentioned up with that you? I've never watched or listened to a podcast before in my life?
0: <laughs> well you'll have to listen to this one when, when we release it
1: i definitely will so
0: <laughs> well i, I want to thank you for being here and and uh and uh you know sharing your, your story with us and we're, we're so glad um that everybody's doing better and that yeah. uh you know we know that uh, she's got a, a long road ahead of her but uh you know just from our, our short time together at, at mary freebed it was pretty clear to my wife and i that libby was a fighter and she wasn't gonna she wasn't going to back down from this. so.
1: She definitely is. So. so. Well, wishing all the best to you and your family as well. And uh, I hope everything continues to move forward for you.
0: Yeah, thank you as well. And I think that will conclude our, our podcast here. Thank you so much, Travis. This has been an awesome conversation.
1: Thanks, Tim. Have a great night.
0: All right. You too, sir. Bye-bye. Well, that concludes another episode of Focused on Forward. To be a guest of Focused on Forward, you can reach us through Twitter at PodcastFOF, through our Facebook page named Focused on Forward, or through email focusedonforward at gmail.com. We look forward to hearing each and every one of your stories that has yet to be told. So until then, be safe, be kind, and be loving to one another as you stay Focused on Forward.